I've been inc increasingly suspicious of things that refer to a nature that is there and pristine and just is because it's not actually what's happening to it is a result of its mediation through culture and part of that is that we don't understand that where we are right now wherever we are right now um, is part of the ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to writers and artists about their process and politics, with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the Storysmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In today's episode of Tender Buttons, we're thrilled to welcome Caleb Parkin, the current Bristol City poet. Caleb has won and been nominated for numerous awards for his poetry, including winning the 2017 Winchester Poetry Prize and coming runner-up in the National Poetry Competition 2016. His educational work is also extensive, tutoring for Poetry Society, Poetry School and Cheltenham Festivals, amongst others, and he holds an MSc in Creative Writing for Therapeutic Purposes. His debut pamphlet, Wasted Rainbow, was released by Tall Lighthouse early this year, and his debut collection, This Fruiting Body, was released by Nine Archers Press this month. It's been described by Samantha Walton as a post-human lyric disco lit with ecological thought, and by John McCullough as generous, monstrous and inspiring. It is to this monstrous lyric disco of a collection that we focus on in this episode. We hope you enjoy. Hey Caleb, welcome to Tender Buttons. Hello, thanks for having me. We're very pleased to have you. Um, we thought we would ask you to do a reading for us to start. So could you maybe introduce your poem and then read it for us? Surely, yes. This is um, the first poem in the collection. And um, it was for the first and last poems are pieces that I wrote in summer 2019. I think it was September. And I went to London and declared myself a poet in residence at the Horniman Museum for the day. No one else knew except me uh, that I was the poet in residence um, and wrote in response to some of the stuff there. Uh, and this poem emerged from from that. Young Animal, Horniman Museum, summer 2019. A greyhound's head its paper-thin fur now even thinner, wall-mounted, next to a bulldog's jowl, now static, unwobbly, and a squish-jawed, fixed Pekingese. The central wolf's muzzle is staged in a jaded snarl. These dog-ends fan out in a ruff around this ancient, the great mother, bearing all dog-breeds as a crown. Their bare and shroud-skinned skulls a halo in bone, relics of curated evolution. Before them, a little girl weeps, just a pup. I'm here only with this notebook, and then notice her mum exchange empathetic looks. I move on, suddenly I height with Hylobates Moloch, from Java's scorched edges. Suspended the simian knots of its fingers still yearn for branches. Young animal. Its gawky limbs stretch, seek the warmth and bristle of an elder for piggybacks, to safety, the upper mantle, and the budding tips of leaves. 
now slight and skeletal cousin, rise from the wall through that glass, as if to shatter all this history. Here, I offer you my back. Hylobates Moloch, by the way, I should have said, is actually a, a silvery gibbon. Uh, I was under the illusion for a while it was an orangutan, um, but another poet who's also a biologist said, no, it's a silvery gibbon. So I had to, there was a little little edit where I had to say, oh, it's, it's, they're, and they're just on Java, uh, the silvery gibbons, but anyway. The silver given yeah. right. <laughs> Important NB for any biologists Absolutely, out there. Absolutely, but you know, people do, they, they notice, they notice this stuff. Firstly, touched on it that it was um, based off your experience in the Horniman Museum. And I found it interesting that the collection, which is such an explosion of interspecies understandings, relations between the human and unhuman, that it began in a museum and the confines of that and this kind of like shattering that happens at the end, the shatter of this history. So I wondered if you could explain why you wanted to start in a museum. Yeah, I mean, Jane Comain and I had a conversation about titles when, um, and I had one in mind, and then actually, and she, one of the titles she proposed was Plinth as well, because this idea of like what we put on plinths and what we put in uh, like uh, cases and tanks and things like this. And actually, and I've got a postcard here, uh, which I just, I've, I've had it there for a while, which is of the Horniman. Um, it's this, and I will describe it. Um, it's of the the main hall at the Horniman, and I had it up for ages. And it has all of the separate animals. You know, there's like a polar bear in one because that's a you know great big predator, and it's staged in a certain way, and a moose, and um, and then there's all the smaller things all arranged very neatly. And I guess I find those spaces so interesting because they're kind of the way that we try and organise and rationalise the more than human um, and stuff it and um, and then put it on display. Um, and so there's there's kind of a lot that goes on in that that first you know this being the first poem especially as you say you know I think that line as if to shatter all this history it felt really important and offering my back and hopefully kind of that's a great kind of springboard for for a lot of what happens. Um, and at the moment, you know, with me, me just being there and then there's this uh, mother and daughter and this daughter crying about these dogs, you know, these decapitated dogs. Uh, and and there are, there's another dog poem in, in the book. But um, just our kind of very complicated historical relationship to all of these creatures. And, and also because there's some colonial history there in terms of Java and what we're doing to, you know, the extractivist kind of roots of a lot of our environmental issues and ecological issues. So it just felt like it kind of, as I say, was a springboard for all of that stuff. Um, and there's quite a few other uh, ekphrastic, um, although I call this ecophrastic, uh, written in response to um, natural history. Should I explain those terms, I wonder? Uh, yeah, why not? So an ekphrastic poem is written in response to an artwork. Um, and I, and obviously there's an eco poem. And then I think there's also an ecophrastic poem, which is these kind of poems that respond to natural history uh, galleries and, uh, in inverted commas, artefacts, which were, of course, animals and living things that have been staged and turned into objects. So this is one of them, you know, the, and the last poem is one, and there's, there's a few others in there too. Yeah, I guess that happens as well with, there's another poem that subject matter is a compost bin. But in that, it's quite an interesting tilt on because because in the epigraph to that poem, you mentioned that it's inspired by Ode to a Grecian Urn by John Keats. And that felt like similarly toying of this idea of like classical wealth or like classical kind of like power in the Grecian Urn turned into like a contemporary compost and all of the like revivifying of that entails. 
Yeah, I hope so. I don't know if I thought that very consciously, to be honest, but it was just felt like the uh, compost bin needed an ode, and um, and that's the ode that, and I was like, well, it's you know, it has a kind of uh, urn like quality, I guess. Um, and I had a lot of fun writing that, but I did use the um, some of the devices, of course, that uh, that Keats uses there, and just to, I'm quite into kind of getting something canonical or highfalutin in a way, and then. Um, smashing it together with something that's maybe not so highfalutin or a bit dirty like, like a compost bin yeah no it's a lot of fun i think that's the thing about the this fruit and body that even though it's constantly touching on such profound themes and like shot through with the kind of pain of the climate crisis and you know as you've touched on there like colonial histories and taxonomies there's like such a play involved and that's where I think the epigraph from Nicole Seymour seems really crucial to this fruiting body, which um, I'll quote now, which is in the face of self-doubt, ridicule and broader ecological crisis, we embrace our own sense of our sense of our own absurdity, our uncertainty, our humour, even our perversity. And I guess that last bit is quite crucial. And so I wanted to come to like your relation to kind of queer eco-poetics and this kind of irreverence and play and how that informs what you do and your practice. Yeah, I guess um, th- it's it's interesting with this book that I felt like there was quite a clear moment that kind of ig- ignited it. There was like an inciting incident and I was at a poetry festival and there was a, a journal of um, climate change poetry. One of the big journals was doing it, you know, they've all done one, but um, so I won't say which one it was, um, but it was a climate change edition. And the editor of the journal said, um, just kind of quite casually or throwaway, said, um, well, there seems to be a big buzz about gender and sexuality in a way that there isn't about climate change. And some strange fizzing happened inside me when I was like, because they're not separate. (laughs) They are not separate things like gender and the way we think about Mother Earth and the way that patriarchy is bound up with uh with colonialism and with extractivism and global capitalism like they're not separate and so i had this real moment when i was like i need to do more queer eco poetry and then when i really thought about it i thought well i've never felt like i've been writing eco poetry and i thought well, why is that i've always been obsessed with animals and the more than human um and obsessed with technology there's always quite a lot of both in my work um but for some reason didn't think I was writing eco-poetry, really. And I think it's because the definition of eco-poetry felt um, felt quite narrow and it felt like I wasn't really necessarily included in it. Uh, and and so recently when we did a Nine Arches eco-poetry thing on National Poetry Day, um, all of the, the uh, Nine Arches poets there uh, all kind of felt in some way that we weren't necessarily, like invited to the party of eco-poetry <laughs> which can be very kind of heteronormative and there's this stuff around like leaving you know leaving um the world this this world for our children assuming that everyone's gonna have children and that that's the only motivation and that um you know so there's a lot of assumed stuff around environmental and ecological writing including eco-poetry so when i kind of really started to read about um yeah the the intersection of environmental ecological uh, sexual identities and gender identities and ways of being and um and what that could mean I was like oh I think I've been doing this already right and you know and then you can then you can write into it you know like the Dolly Parton find out who you are and do it on purpose one of my favorite quotes and I, I sort of felt like I was like oh I've already been doing this and so leaning into that was really really fun and um and then got to reading uh, like Nicole Seymour who's fantastic a book called uh bad environmentalism um 
which irony and irreverence in the ecological age, which I've really enjoyed and, um, and was like, no, there's more to this. It's not just about um, being silly, although silliness is important. Um, there's more to that. And there's more to irony, um, which she really unpacked for me in a way I, I could suddenly see the work more clearly. Um, and there's more to humour. I mean, I've, I've kind of thought about humour before. Uh, you know, people, oh, it's humorous poetry. It's like, no, it's not one thing. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of different layers and levels going on in irony or irreverence or anything else. So I, I think um, that's where I feel most at home. <laughs> but maybe, but maybe as queer people, we do as well. Like I feel like it's one of the ways that we make our way through the world is through humour and wit and um, yeah, away with words. So it it fits for me with the kind of with the work um, and some of the approaches to. Um, kinship and stuff as well I think I think that's really reflected in the language you use as well like I feel like you have a real sort of humorous and playful but also kind of dark and profound relationship with words on a a line level and you kind of mix in pop culture references you know it's very like high and low culture all wrapped together and I feel like um your language is like super malleable, like, and it slides around the mouth very easily. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about your relationship to language on kind of a linguistic level and how that maybe ties in with some of those themes mm. that you mentioned. Oh yeah, lovely. Well, that's a great question. Um, mm, um, yeah, I do really enjoy the music of the poems and I think that's really important and that your, your music happens both intuitively and through a process of design or construction and and really I think with any creative practice it's how you put those two together and so when if you're practicing then sometimes you know writing about um like the compost bin poem you know I felt like I wanted that to be self-composting language so it's so freaking over the top that it kind of almost it becomes parodic you know it's deliberately so but also I'm genuinely like look at the compost bin it is you know I, I mean it but I'm also once you know I don't want to I think I think sometimes the earnestness of eco writing can become a bit much so in that I'm like you know I want it to be super musical and full of this kind of over-the-top imagery and it for it to be really mellifluous and flowing and exclamation marks and o's and you know oh compost bin um which is a very deliberate choice in that um and there's other other times when you want the language to be so I'm thinking because I, I read it um at the launch on the boat the poem the channel where i'm i'm deliberately using quite a journalistic neutrality about uh, a boat full of uh, forced migrants um and that again is very deliberate and jane and i talked about that because one of the ways that you can especially kind of acknowledging your positionality as someone in in, in the west who uh, which I hope the poem does, who hasn't experienced that, like actually having a kind of objectivity rather than again trying to trying to kind of force a kind of feeling on a reader is much more effective, uh, almost just to present the facts and kind of, yeah, there's a kind of uh, one step back from it. So I think in every kind of poem you're making a world that's partly, that is all of those things a poem is. So the form and it's the voice and it's the music that voice has um, and that that music and that aesthetic has to kind of fit with what the world that you're creating. And that can be quite ugly. And I'm fine with that. You know, I like doing that sometimes too. Um, or like terms of service, your fruiting body is modeled on the Google terms of service and it's very corporate. And I love reading that because I do a sort of, um, not quite American kind of, uh, healthy voice while doing it. And it's quite sinister because I wanted, 
I wanted mycelium, you know, mycelium doesn't care about us and that's okay. It's like kind of gorgeous that it doesn't, but so to, but nor does Google. Um, so I think kind of quite, quite fun to kind of adopt that voice and its music. So, so I feel like the music as well as part of a queer poetics and eco poetics and it's, it slithers around and sometimes I try something out where I speak in a different voice or adopt a kind of weird device to see what might happen and experiment with it. Um, and I love playing with language like I always have um, and don't want to lose that. I think it's vital. As you're answering that about like the layers of mediation, for example, like in your Dung Beetle poem, where it's like you're using language as a poet to like reach across difference. But even as you're doing that, you're writing to a gif rather than the Dung Beetle. So it's kind of like turning on its head and playing of it, even as you're doing it. And so... Uh, and in that poem, I, I love the kind of repetition, like, like me, unlike me, like me, unlike me. And so I wondered if you could speak to the kind of possibilities of poetry to reach across difference towards the non-human, the more than human, as well as like the dangers or the limits that you kind of can encounter because of because of all of the things that um, people speak of about the dangers of anthropomorphizing stuff in human language or... Yes, for sure. I think there's a couple of things there. One of which is one of the, the things I think a lot of the poems do is refer to the construction of, in inverted commas, nature or the, cause, yeah, construction of capital N nature within culture. And I think sometimes that doesn't get enough attention uh, within eco poetry. It's almost assumed that like nature is over there and there, here it is. And I'm like, what is it? Like, I don't know, you know, and where's that coming from? What? what? So, I've been inc increasingly suspicious of things that refer to a nature that is there and pristine and just is because it's not actually what's happening to it is a result of its mediation through culture. And part of that is that we don't understand that where we are right now, wherever we are right now, um, is part of the ecosystem. So so that's that's quite a deliberate choice uh, or well you know again it's a thing i kept doing and then thought why am i doing this oh uh, it's the mediation of nature and culture right okay so there's loads of that in the book echo the dolphin there's you know like all sorts of things um and i think that poetry can be really good at building in the doubt about itself and so actually you know that's one of nicole seymour's ideas about a thoroughgoing irony which i think is super helpful so she writes about corrective irony and thoroughgoing irony and a lot of uh, so she talks about different texts and corrective irony might be i suppose for me in the book there's a poem called the zone where i speak in a very like macho voice ordering coffee from goldilocks which is kind of corrective irony towards patriarchy yeah and it's kind of funny but also not you know it's kind of uh, corrective and that's okay sometimes especially if you're punching up you know always if you're punching up again the thing I say in school workshops punch up not across or down um so so that's one one style of irony and then another style is this thoroughgoing irony when you where you implicate yourself so it can be kind of ironic but in some way you kind of say like I'm I'm in this too um I'm I'm in, you know I've got stuff uh I just have a car so I can get to places you know I'm not I'm not perfect um because I think sometimes in eco discourses, then sometimes that then I think sometimes in eco discourses, people think that if you voice any ecological concerns, you have to be perfect and pristine. And I think that's bullshit. Um, it's just absolute nonsense. So thoroughgoing irony in this way can short circuit it, I think. And poems can be quite good at doing that when you're kind of saying like, you know, I'm we're all we're all here in this uh, conundrum together. So. 
so in terms of the non-human and our community, you know, the ways that we kind of relate to uh, non-human animals or um, the bigger ecosphere, I guess that's that's one way I do it is to kind of build that playfulness in that's kind of not trying to collect, you know, to claim that I'm perfect. Um, I'm definitely not. And um, have some fun with that. Something that I was thinking about a lot while I was reading your collection, or that your collection made me think about, um, particularly the Great Great Grand Spider poem, which is set in 2120. And you, you said this line that was like, she is now. And it made me really think about the way that time works in your poetry, but also kind of how the climate crisis happens in all three tenses at once because it's kind of like the the grief for what we've lost or like actions we can't change and then there's this present tense cusp moment that it really feels like we're on at the moment and then obviously like the projection of the future is there a future what's going to happen and I feel like as a writer one thinks about like time and tenses and where you're situated within that a lot so I was wondering if you could talk about the links between those things um, and kind of in relation to that poem, maybe, especially. Yeah, sure. So that poem was written um, as a commission, a city poet, for um, a launch of The Good Ancestor um, by Roman, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce his name, Roman Krasnik, I think it is. Um, and I, I must admit, I was... <laughs> There was an epigraph in the book, The Good Ancestor, about like waking up and wondering what world you're leaving for your children or your grand grandchildren. It was the same trope, you know, of this kind of like you're only going to do anything if you're thinking about your genetic progeny and how they've experienced this. And I was like, <laughs> I was anyway. I put, pulled a face then for the listeners at home. Even though it's a lovely book and I did read a lot of it, but I just feel like that that kind of that trope is really done, and it kind of actually just leads us towards a lot of the same anthropocentric ways of being. And so I thought, okay, well, what's an animal that people really aren't into a lot of the time? Spiders. And I researched spiders and found this, um, yeah, Microhexura motivago, who's this uh, spruce fur moss spider, which is the world's smallest tarantula, as I mentioned. I give a bit of context at the beginning of the poem. Um, and they're, they're really threatened by climate change. Um, the title, actually, by the way, is, is kind of factually incorrect because it wouldn't just be great, great grand spider. It would be like great, great, a million greats because they don't live that long. But I couldn't fit all that in. So I just simplified to great, great. Uh, but I, I think I did really want to. And actually, Roman was really happy with the poem and he really liked He called it, you know, in terms of the kind of biophilia of it, of really, really trying to get people to love this spider um, for its nowness and its what it's doing on its own terms. And then it does not care. Like, that's beautiful. And that's, it's also quite a deliberate choice to write something that's future-oriented, not in a human way, and also future-oriented in a way that kind of suggests that, you know, we, we can do it. I'm not saying we will, like, <laughs> even. But isn't it kind of helpful sometimes to kind of imagine some alternative futures and alternative presents? Um, Nicole Seymour has this phrase of, like, existing nonetheless. And I think she's referring to Jack Halberstam and queer time and temporality, uh, for lots of queer people, like existing nonetheless is uh, very much a reality, um, whether that's through, you know, not having children or choosing not to have children. And of course, um, queer and uh, people in different genders partnerships can have children biologically. And I have friends who have done all combinations, which is marvellous, but we're less likely to. Same sex partnerships are less likely to. Um, and also there's more possibilities historically of things like homophobic violence or HIV AIDS or, you know, but we exist nonetheless. Um, so this idea, I think, is quite powerful 
to say, what if we existed nonetheless? And and we, we're now, too, you know? And there's... Um, there's a lovely thing about rather than fear, the opposite of um, the opposite of fear might actually be uncertainty, rather than hope. Hope is like not always very helpful. I don't think. Like I think uncertainty is quite good with the climate discourse as well. And yeah, going back to like mainstream environmental discourse, which is like this obsession of salvation or damnation, this kind of like binary thing about the next 10 years or it's nothing rather than thinking apocalypse has already happened yes. for many people all around the world that's often used to be like technology is still going to save us in a very capitalist mindset about oh yeah the billionaires in rockets golden you know golden bullet will seed the clouds we'll do all this yeah again you know yeah the salvation domination and um so kairani baraka um who is another Nine Arches poet, and she's, she talks a lot about this on the event on National Poetry Day, um, that kind of Western-centric idea of, like, oh, we can still save the world as well. But as you say, you know, it's the, the Anthropocene has led to a lot of apocalypses and ends of worlds globally already. So I just, yeah, th- again, it's another binary. You know, like utopia, dystopia is another unhelpful binary, which a kind of queer mindset maybe can help us kind of leap across and dance around and through. Um it's likely that it's going to be a little bit, little bit dystopia and a little bit utopia. You know, it's not going to be. It's never just one thing. Um, so, yeah, I feel like inviting people to consider various alternatives and remain uncertain is probably what I'm interested in. You, you use lots of again playful juxtapositions between like the mundane and things that are more magical in some way. So, like, there's a garden poem where there's like. This juxtaposition between like mundane suburban garden objects and then actually what's beneath it is the sewers and the excess and the gushing forth of lots of the city's waste but like that juxtaposition in the poem feels like it it transports it somewhere way beyond us just like what we imagine the suburban garden to be so i was wondering about this like juxtaposition that you have between the mundane and things that transport it or transform it into something else yeah for sure um my brain's always done that uh for some reason um and i we have kind of joke in our house that um when we like my partner and i are reading things that, um he'll kind of read something and then i'll be like would i like it and he's like nothing weird happens particularly and i'll be like mm, okay i mean i give it a go is the writing good because i don't I, I feel like if for me um you know f- science fiction and sort of fantastical stuff and magical realism are often spaces in literature where we get to more interesting realizations than again for me and I have read some great social realism but um I don't find it as interesting or engaging um and I guess I was reading um Adrian Marie Brown is that emergent strategy yeah emergent strategy yeah. yeah so i was and um and so adrian marie brown is super into sci-fi and she articulated some stuff that i hadn't really realized i why i liked it and that's about um imagined versions of uh, people or groups of people um and imagined futures and desired futures um and so it can be a really kind of potent way of um thinking about what we want and don't want and how we see one another and how we see the you know the earth and the biosphere and so I guess a lot of the time those kinds of springboards happen um in in my work where something 
or you know even in the first poem which actually is just a moment in a museum it ends with this skeleton coming through the glass and climbing on my back something that i really liked is your relationship to the body and how that links to human conundrum i'm thinking of the fatberg poem where you describe like every wet wipe tampon etc of as evidence of some body two separate words and i thought there was something really interesting there about like the idea of the trace of things that we leave in the world like the permanent trace and then kind of like the leave no trace mentality that that lots of people have and I guess about how writing in its own way is an attempt to leave a trace so I felt like it reflected really well the almost the paradox of being a person on the earth like how you want to live in a way that doesn't harm your surroundings but how at the same time we're always looking for like proof of our existence or, or like proof that we can affect change I think I mean the Fatberg poem is about writing really as much as it's about Fatbergs and then um, the, the the Fatberg itself at the London Museum is very disappointing um you go and they've preserved a little little section of Fatberg which is sort of desiccated and not as you know and I had in mind I was like there's gonna be this huge oleaginous monstrosity and it's gonna be you know, and it's really not. But they do talk about the Fatberg and then the global phenomenon of Fatbergs. And so the poem is also about, and it was written for my master's actually, which is um, creative writing for therapeutic purposes when I was exploring museums and galleries and uh, uh, therapeutic writing. Um, and so so I suppose it then became a poem about the attempt to preserve something that is unpreservable. So yeah, it does reflect what you're saying. Uh, and I was reminded then too of, um, there's a Jane Hirschfield book called Hiddenness, Uncertainty, Surprise. Uh, it's one of the Blood Axe um, Newcastle lectures series. It's a really lovely book. And she talks in that about the desire in hiddenness, the desire to be hidden and the kind of urge to be seen. And that so much of poetry is about that too, but so, so much of um, animal behaviours is also often about that. And when we wish to be hidden and it's actually kind of a luxury to be seen. Um, so, and I think poetry for me is, is a space that I kind of really want to be seen. It's great. And also kind of want to hide <laughs> a little bit uh, or kind of, I think a lot of poets are kind of strange ambiverts in that way. And I think, as you were saying about the desire to leave no trace, which is impossible. Um, you know, we are here and by being here, we're consuming resources and you can go down a really nihilistic rabbit hole with that. Uh, really like uh, rabbit hole is probably the wrong term. It can become really kind of atavistic. So back to some primal thing and we should all go and live in caves and we should, you know, and all the rest of it. And it's like, that's not that's not possible either. So we've got to find some way uh, of, ex you know, existing nonetheless and consuming in a way that has some connection um, with the world around us but I don't I don't necessarily know what that is but certainly it's it's definitely about trying to be more awake to the impact that we do have rather than ignoring it so I suppose one of the things in the book is really trying to get people to feel their blurry edges with uh, with the biosphere and the ecosphere that we're in I was struck by how much the symbol of the garden seemed to weave its way throughout it made me think about like the poetic role of the garden across loads of literature like you know this is the garden of eden and then the historical english country garden it's like rooted in colonialism but then also like 1950s suburban gardens and in your fruiting body there's like the poem that i mentioned just now where like a seemingly mundane suburban setting kind of gets 
writhing with all the substrata and all of the sewers and stuff. And then there's <laughs> the another moment where they... Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, Linguini. <laughs> and then there's another moment where it comes in, and it really s- surprised me a lot, actually, the, the entrance of that garden. It was just after a really powerful Fugi poem. In that, I'm just going to read from it, if that's all right, just one little quote where the garden comes in, uh, which is, Pictures from above. Notice on these regulation green walls a single painting, a garden gate subsumed by foliage. Observe the bristle of its fawn, the bright red syllables among its roses. And I was thinking about, yeah, like these different gardens that seem to almost, they they seem to have some kind of contrasting dialogue in the fruiting body from their location between like the painted garden gate and the garden at the start of the collection. And so, yeah, I wondered if you could speak a little bit about like what the garden means for you in like poetic terms and perhaps otherwise. So I suppose in that poem, in The Painted Gate, it's kind of the garden as image of, or the gate in the garden as kind of image of entry point, and it's a poem about bums, uh, anal sex is the first words in the poem. Um, So it was kind of this image of, yeah, a few things there, I guess. And it just so happened it really was the picture on the wall uh, of this kind of garden gate, and of gatekeepers to healthcare, and of like gates to the body, um, and so a few things. But but in the wider kind of context of the book, um, the the two garden poems at the beginning, I suppose I'm also setting out setting out the stool of the garden as a kind of um, intermediary between what we think of as nature, big N, and then what we have in our kind of backyards or gardens. Um, and certainly dear horticultural mother-in-law, you know, sets up the warfare of gardening, of killing things to kind of keep, which we do all the time, you know, pesticides and whatever else. Um, and then garden, we're kind of terraforming this space, which is very, you know, this is what we did in our garden. Um, so it's a kind of, and, and I kind of viewed it and I put it near to if the earth is my mother, because I thought, well, maybe the garden is mother-in-law. And then I was like, okay, I don't know what stepmother is. (laughs) But um, that was kind of how I was thinking of it. And there's such fascinating spaces, gardens. And of course, there's a whole load of history, which has been written about brilliantly. Uh, Zakia McKenzie, Bristol writer, uh, writes a lot about um, horticulture and and, and other writers fantastically. Um, It's colonial uh, resonances too, and um, where all these plants come from, the way we name them. Um, Just off the back of that, I really loved your poem um, at the outdoor store. Um, and I loved how you wrote about like the gendering or the the kind of heteronormativity of a- outdoor wear, <laughs> and it made me think about how like we we do project a kind of gender onto nature or like patriarchal or like bear grills type persona, and I was just wondering what's your relationship to that. Um, I love that poem. I wrote eight of those, uh, eight outdoor store poems, and the book was originally going to be called Outdoor Store, which I liked. But um, but then when we got talking, I got talking to Jane about it, and she um, she was like, mm, no, I think you know we just need to let the other poems breathe, and kind of took them all out and kept that one. And there's a whole there's a little run of poems about dressing up, uh, which are really about dressing up in various ways. There's the kind of Saab hermit crab. There's uh, a Morris dancing poem and there's another one which is uh, I think the witch Plasticos the plastic witch um, which are all in some way about kind of dressing up and assuming identities in different ways through disguise or whatever else because wilderness particularly is coded as straight white male heterosexual and productive like so much of the time and um, and so I suppose and I think lots of 
LGBT plus people feel like this sometimes being out in nature and also lots of people of colour feel this way being out in nature, whatever that is, um, or in the countryside, is like you can't be that and be camp um, or you can't be that and be, you know, brown you can't be that and it's like no we can we can be we can be at the beach we can be in a clifftop and we can also be in sequins or we can also you know whatever else but there's like a uniform you know almost a uniform kind of thing and so it was interesting just to tune into that and how it's reflected in the retail space that sells us the outdoors because it is a lot of the time i've noticed actually because i'm super fascinated by the go outdoors catalog and uh, and i've noticed there's way more models of color now which is brilliant there's never any same-sex couples or anyone who like might be uh, gender creative within their within the covers of their <laughs> I just find it fascinating you know the way that and, and that's some of the stuff that's in that poem I guess um and also because I'd been into the outdoor store with my dogs and actually I guess I find that quite interesting the experience of being in that space um with non-humans because it's such a kind of weirdly coded coded and gendered environment uh, so I, I find them fascinating I think this would be a really nice place to leave it and to finish with a reading from this fruiting body so this is a kind of prose poem called I compare myself to a gif of a dung beetle uh, a gif for those who don't know where have you been is a um is a small small animated picture uh, they I think they're brilliant they're what the internet is for uh their creator thought they should be called GIFs, but they're not. Everyone calls them GIFs. Um, and also a, a word in the poem, exuviae, lovely word. Uh, exuviae are the shed skins of lots of invertebrates that they leave around when they grow until they're the biggest they're going to be. So that's the word exuviae. And it starts with a quote from Jeanette Winterson's The Power Book. There's no effort which is not beautiful, lifting a heavy stone or loving you. I compare myself to a gif of a dung beetle. Like me, it is a roller, begins the climb diligently, furry legs pressed against its dung ball burden, as Monday promises much. Unlike me, it likes an all-nighter, can heft by the Milky Way and commit to its starlit labours. Like me, its habits are misunderstood. The ancient Egyptians believed scarabs only male, their young emerging from those loaded spheres. Unlike me, they were believed to push the sun itself across the sky, right round, through the underworld, back for morning. So industrious and gif-like. Like me, they are various, multiplicities, rhinoceros, Hercules, Maybug, Cockchafer. Unlike me, their bodies are hard and shiny, though perhaps mine could be, with work. Like me, they sometimes stop and look up, seem to wonder where the hell in this desert they are. Unlike me, they simply push on, unconcerned with comparison, befuddled by the ethics of Egyptian theft. Like me, they should be met on their own terms, to do their job and know that gravity will win. Let's unite, beetles, divest our old names like exuviae. I'll shimmy out from homo sapiens, unburden myself from man. Let's roll the sun together through days trembling like antennae iridescent, through nights like underworlds crisp with exoskeleton. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. 
You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.